Good morning. It's always fun to have a baby dedication because we get to see the family and friends of members of our church family. So we're glad you're here with us today. We're glad you could join us, and I'm sure it'll be a wonderful day together for you guys. Uh, We are here, as always, on Sundays to be in God's Word, uh, but also for fellowship. And so we give a lot of time in our services for you to greet and connect with people because that is really very important, if not as important as being in the Word and being in service and being in worship. So all of these things, and in prayer, all of these things are very important to us. They are the vision of the early church. Now, I want to start by saying we live in a world that is determined to divide. The culture today, when I say the world, I mean the world culture, is determined to divide us into camps, political factions, to the point where we can't, you know, we can't even get along if we disagree. And I'm old enough to remember a time where you could disagree and not be disagreeable. But we're well past that now. So hopefully in the church we can lovingly disagree on certain points and still love one another. But in the world it's not happening and it's only going to get worse. We're in a place of division. I'll give you one example. Today, depending on your likes, dislikes, preferences of all times, all types, you, you end up with a letter, and that letter sort of defines you. We all know the alphabet soup that we talk about today, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but, you know, you get a letter, and that letter defines you. I, one of those letters I saw recently was, was not even a letter, it was the number two, and I said, the number two? What's the number two? And apparently, there are some people that feel that they actually are two people, not one person, so they need a number to describe their being, because they're actually not one person, they're two. You know, when I was growing up, we called that mental illness. And I don't mean to be insensitive, I'm actually being truthful. If you think you're two people, well, you don't need, you don't need a number or a letter, you need help. And the church provides help to people who are looking for identity, because we provide identity in Christ. Amen? And it's really just one letter. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just one person who's in Christ, but there is a second type of person. So actually, we acknowledge that there are only two types of people in the world. Those that belong to Jesus Christ and those that don't. And so this morning, we're going to look at God's word in the book of Revelation in chapter 14 and in verse 14. And we are going to see that God in his word, clearly defines the two types of people that always have existed and always will exist, even into the last days, those in Christ and those who reject Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask for ears to hear. We ask for your spirit's power to give us the ability to understand that we each are given an opportunity by you, who have given us free will, to make a decision for you or against you. And if we refuse to make a decision, then we default to against you. And that the consequences in eternity are severe for those that reject you, but for those that receive you, to as many as receive you, to those that believe on your name, you've given us the right to be called children of God. And so there are those that are children of God and those that refuse or reject that opportunity to be a child of God. And we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that has deferred that decision or or doesn't really understand the importance of that decision, may your Holy Spirit impart to their hearts the importance 
of belonging to you for all eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't live in a black and white world anymore. We live in a world of lots of gray. But this morning's study will point out very clearly that there is coming a day when there will be a harvest of the earth and a vintage of the earth. A harvest and a vintage. Now, why those terms? Because if you lived in an agrarian society, those were two very important times in the agricultural calendar. There was a time of harvest where you would harvest the wheat. And there was a time of vintage where you would take in the grapes and create or make wine with those grapes. You'd press the grapes and then the winemaking would begin. So those two important things on or events on the agricultural calendar are used today in this vision that John receives in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, to help us to understand that there are two fates awaiting two groups of people on the earth. And the first we'll talk about is more positive. It's the harvest of the earth. So let's read this section, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll read about the vintage and talk about that. And then I'd like to share a little bit from the Gospels on a parable that Jesus gave us that reflects these exact visions that John received. We read in verse 14 of Revelation 14, I looked, John writes, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. Like a Son of Man. That's a, that's a very interesting term. With a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple, and this is in heaven, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on, a, on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This is a vision. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's a metaphor. It's an analogy. It's a picture of things that are yet to happen on the earth. But when this day comes, there will be a moment in time toward the end of this world system, toward the end of this wicked world, where the Lord Jesus Christ will harvest the earth of those that have made a decision for him. This is a more positive thing than the vintage. The harvest is that of receiving from the earth those that live for him and are awaiting his return. Now, let me be clear. In today's world right now, if you were to uh, pass on in Christ, you would be in the presence of the Lord. If you were to be alive in this time that we're talking about in the last days, the same would be true. But as we talked about and have been talking about over the last few weeks in chapter 14, this chapter really talks about a group of people who will be martyred for their faith. So the harvest with the sickle is sort of an accurate picture. Because what it describes is those in Christ during the last days, those last seven years of tribulation on the earth, those in Christ who will be martyred for their faith and therefore harvested, the way that wheat is cut from the ground, they will be taken, their lives will be taken because they reject the world system and the evil in it. And because they live for Christ, they'll be martyred for their faith. And that martyrdom is what we're talking about today. Yes, it's a harvest, 
In fact, we're told in chapter 13, latter part of chapter 13, that they'll be beheaded for their faith. So the the picture is accurate, but it's a picture of those that pass on in the last days, are killed for their faith, and find themselves harvested like wheat and gathered in the barns. And that picture portrays for us the fate that awaits those that love Christ. So it is a little negative in that the people are martyred for their faith, but it's a much more positive message because it points to the fate that awaits those that choose Christ. Amen? Okay, so let's look at this because uh, we'll break it down. The vision has a number of symbols I want to talk about. First, John sees one like a son of man. The term a son of man really just refers to someone that is human or or looks human. And, And sometimes... Those prophets, like in the case of Ezekiel, are called the Son of Man. But when Jesus walked the earth, he was referred to as both the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of Man spoke to his human nature, Son of God to his divine nature. So when we talk about a Son of Man in this picture, what John is trying to communicate is, I saw someone that looked human. When he sees a mighty messenger, he'll call that, that, that being a mighty angel. But angel just means messenger. So sometimes in the book of Revelation, a mighty messenger will actually be a picture of Jesus. Just like in chapter, uh, chapter 5, we see the Lamb before the throne of God. It, it's a picture of Jesus. Remember the name of the book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So many times and in many different ways, Jesus is revealed to us. Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb of God, Mighty Messenger, High Priest, So don't be confused by these multiple visions that are given to us because they're just given to us to reveal the nature and the ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In this vision, he appears as a human being because remember, even though he is the Son of God, he is a Son of Man. He is human, a raised human being, but still the Son of Man. And he's seated on a white cloud. Now, I know that if you're familiar with certain art, especially Baroque art form, and uh, especially the Italian masters, you'll, you'll look at this, you'll think of Raphael's angels, let's say. You'll, you'll think of someone just sort of sitting on a cloud, and that's what we await in heaven. Oh, we're just going to get to, we'll get a harp, and we'll sit on a cloud. And that's not at all what this is really describing for us. Seated on a cloud has more to do with this idea of the bright clouds that appear whenever the heavenly and the earthly realms intersect. I've shared this with you a number of times. It goes all the way back to the time of Abram when when he made a covenant with God, or God made a covenant with him, and there was this smoking, what was described as a blazing torch or a fire pot that passed between the pieces of the sacrifice. It goes back to the time where a cloud covered Moses on Mount Sinai, or a pillar of cloud and fire over the ark in the wilderness. Or the time that a cloud filled the temple at Solomon's dedication of the temple. Or when Isaiah and Ezekiel both saw the glory of God in a cloud. That word cloud comes up over and over again in both the New and the Old Testaments. Remember that a bright cloud enveloped Peter, James, and John during the Mount of Transfiguration. When they saw Jesus in all of his glory. And of course, we can't forget, in the book of Acts in chapter 1, when Jesus himself was taken up before his disciples in what is described as a cloud which hid him from their sight. And what did we learn? As we studied the Gospels, we learned that in the way that Jesus ascended into heaven, he will return in the clouds. 
So when we talk about clouds, don't think of the clouds you might see in the sky today, although it looks pretty clear out there. You might see clouds and you might think of that. That's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about this fantastic glory that takes place in the sky when heaven and earth intersect. It's kind of cool. Well, Daniel saw one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven as well. In Daniel chapter 7, and that points to Jesus, of course. At that time, they didn't know that his name would be Jesus. They only knew that he would be the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But now, we know it's Jesus. And of course, he will come again in the clouds when he returns. Now, he also had a crown of gold on his head. And that helps us to see that we're not talking about just another messenger or another angel. He also has a sharp sickle in his hand. And if you're familiar with a sickle, you know that it, it, it kind of predated the, uh, the lawn trimmer, you know, the edgers that we use. Uh, you used a sickle to cut, I mean, they had large sickles, small sickles, but basically the sickle was used to cut grass or harvest wheat. Now that's why we know that this is the Lord with the crown on the cloud holding the sickle, crowned as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, prepared with a sharp sickle, as a farmer ready for the harvest. It's a picture. It's a symbol which describes deeper things. But this is a vision that is given to John to help him to understand the things that are going to happen in the last days. Now, we're then told another angel or another messenger came out of the temple in heaven and called in a loud voice to the one sitting on the cloud. This is an announcement. It's not an order. He's not instructing Jesus. It's more this idea of the announcement. He's a herald. And in announcing what's about to happen, I want to point out, and I've mentioned this before, that there is a heavenly temple of which the earthly is only a copy. And we know that because the book of Psalms in chapter 11 and Hebrews in chapter 8 tells us and speaks of a heavenly temple. So what we experience on earth or what the Jews have or have had on earth, is only a copy. The tabernacle, the temple, were copies that pictured what was in heaven. That's what Moses saw on the mount. And he, to the best of their abilities, replicated symbols that pointed to that heavenly temple. Now, this messenger that comes out of the temple announces that one, the one, like the Son of Man, who we know to be Jesus, was about to harvest the earth. The moment has come. It's time to remove God's people from the earth. Let's start by saying this. There is not just one moment in the last days where God removes his people from the earth. And this is why so many people get confused. Uh, There's so much debate and argument about when these things take place. And I'm going to tell you something. I think The answer to, is it pre, is it mid, is it post-rapture or resurrection, is probably yes, yes, and yes. Because you see, the rapture of the church, I believe, will take place before these days begin, and the church of Jesus Christ will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus in the clouds, back to that reference there. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up in the air, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But that's just the beginning of harvests, if you will, or what's called the first resurrection. It's not a singular moment. It actually goes all the way back to the time that Jesus rose from the dead. Because we know when Jesus rose from the dead, something peculiar happened. The people in Jerusalem saw some of those holy men who had died come out of their tombs. We're told that in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. 
what was going on. I can only surmise that at that point, the people who were in Christ, were in faith, waiting for Christ, were in this place called Abraham's bosom, which Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Luke. And when Christ descended into Abraham's bosom, he set the captives free. And three days later, when he rose, he took them in his train, in his wake, as the scripture says. And he took them into the presence of God. But he's the first fruits of the dead. He had to be raised from the dead first, and then everyone else could receive resurrected bodies and spend an eternity, not just in the presence of God, but in their resurrected form. When we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. You see, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I see in part, but then I shall know fully and be fully known. So you see, there is a day coming where everyone will receive, who is in Christ, will receive a resurrected body. I believe that those during the time of Jesus received theirs. But then there's a moment, and it hasn't happened yet, where the dead in Christ will rise first. And that's why when you and I, when we go to a wake or a funeral, and we remember that person's life and we celebrate their life, the body is still in the casket or in the ground. Because that first resurrection, which started when Christ was raised from the dead, isn't fully completed. That will happen. And then there's going to be seven years, which isn't necessarily linked to the rapture of the church, but there'll be seven years. And during that time, there will be several moments throughout that time that we've studied in the book of Revelation that people will receive resurrected bodies. One I can think of is in the middle of that time period, you have these two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 that we talked about, who are going to receive their resurrected bodies in front of everyone after three and a half days and be caught up to the throne of God. We've been talking in chapter 14 about the 144,000 Jews, the sealed servants of God, who apparently will be harvested from the earth. And that's primarily in focus here in chapter 14, as we talked about it for the last two weeks through the 144,000 and also the messages of the three angels, which we studied last week. And so now here we are seeing the the finality of God's plan for these 144,000 Jews, and not just them, but those Gentiles that will come to know him through their ministry. So this is kind of pointing to that uh, moment when during what I believe is probably the last three and a half years of that seven-year period, those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, who refuse to reject Christ, who receive Christ, will in fact be martyred. But what I think we're seeing here, because we see them in, in, the, in heaven, we're seeing that they will definitely, their souls will definitely be caught up to God, but indeed their bodies may be resurrected as well. In fact, I, I suspect that will probably be true. Looking at this, I realize there is coming a day when the earth will be harvested. So I've kind of laid out for you, there are a number of things that will happen between now and Christ coming again in terms of him gathering his people. It's not a singular event. In the book of Revelation, it's called the first resurrection, but it actually goes from Christ's resurrection all the way to the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ. It's not a singular event. There is a second resurrection. That is a singular event And it doesn't end well for those who are part of the second resurrection. They will experience what we call, or what the scriptures call, the second death, which is eternal death. That's a lot. I understand that's a lot. But now that I've described it to you, you can look at this and you can understand what's being pictured for us 
It's pretty simple, and it's talked about throughout the scriptures. But the messenger announces that one like the Son of Man is about to harvest the earth. The time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth was ripe. Now, I'm not a farmer. I've, I've spent my summers on farms and done a little farming with people who really know what they're doing. And I know this, that when it's time to reap, it's obvious. I remember one time as a kid, me and my brothers and my family, we, we would farm sit up in uh, Sussex County, right near High Point, actually right on the border of High Point. There was a, a, a farm there, and we would spend a couple weeks there uh, giving the farmer and his wife and his family a break. It's a lot of work, by the way, uh, to take care of a farm. I was in charge of the chickens, but uh, my, my dad, I think my dad was in charge of the pigs. I, my mom assigned the tasks, so... Um, and she was in charge of the cow. She had to milk the cow. So we all had jobs, and, and mine was the chickens. But I do know it's a lot of work, and, and it's not like you can take a day off. It's like every day, right? So taking care of a farm, toward the end of the harvest season, certain crops need to be harvested. Now, they had a field, and in that field they had what they call feed corn. You know, I always used to laugh when, it's funny, a lot of the corn you see in Sussex County is, in fact, feed corn. It's used for the animals. There are fields of corn that we eat. You wouldn't want to eat feed corn. Like as a human being, you, you, you wouldn't want it. it. It's not for human consumption, really. So a lot of people, we used to call them city slickers, even though I'm technically one. And, and they used to come and they used to think they were doing something slick. They'd sneak into the field and they'd cut down some corn around harvest time and they'd take it home. Oh, boy, were they in for a surprise when they realized it was feed corn. You don't want that. So here's the thing. I remember one fall, I guess it was towards the fall, we got the call and we decided to go up and we were all helping. And what we would do is we would follow the, the combine or the, or the reaper, the machinery would go through, and we would pick up the pieces that got left behind. And we would take that corn and then we would put it on a conveyor belt and it would go up into a silo and it would drop in and it would dry and ultimately it came out the bottom and that's what we fed the chickens with. So I got a, a good picture of the whole process. But here's the thing. There is a time when you have to reap or the crop will rot. You can't wait longer than a moment. There is a particular moment. You do it too soon, you, you blew it. The whole harvest is ruined. You've got to wait for the specific moment. And why is that important? Because there will be a specific moment when it's time to reap the earth. And during that time, in the last days, the earth will experience a reaping of sorts, and Christ will remove his people through death. He'll remove them from the earth. And that's what's being pictured for us. This is the harvest of martyred souls that Jesus taught to the people, and we're going to look at that before we close today in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. It's called the parable of the weeds. We're going to take a look at that before we close. But once the earth is ripe for harvest, Jesus will usher these precious saints into his presence. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. We should have a pretty good understanding at this point in our service as to what we're seeing here. Okay, so we've talked about the harvest of the earth. What's the vintage? What's that all about? And I'm going to tell you that I am fascinated by viniculture, the making of wine. I haven't had a drink in 37 years, but I am fascinated by the culture. You know, I've gone to wineries just to see how it's done. You know, I, I just skip out on the wine tasting, if you will. But uh, when I go there, it, it's a beautiful art form. It really is to, to, to create wine and to, 
I've watched a lot of movies about it, and I find it fascinating. I'm not tempted to drink it, but I'm just saying it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a process. It's a, it's, it's a science. And what I do know about, is it, only from what I've gleaned, if you will, and seen in others uh, as they do this, is that it's a very intricate process. The grapes have to be grown just so, in a soil that's just right, and those grapes have to be picked and harvested the vintage has to take place at just the right time. The grapes have to be squashed and prepared in the right way, bottled perfectly, and everything has to go just right. Then they have competitions to see who did the best job. So it is quite fascinating. So that's the picture. That's a, that's a normal thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's the picture that's used to talk about the vintage of the earth, which is very different. Let's read. In verse 17. John tells us another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And blood, now that's interesting because this isn't a normal vintage. Blood's coming out, right? And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, or 180 miles. That's pretty fascinating. Well, that's a picture that an agrarian society would know all too well, and we've talked about already. What does it mean? What is... What is John seeing, and, and what does it tell us about the last days? Well, the angel came out with a sickle. Notice this time, it isn't the son of man. See, the harvest is accomplished through Jesus, but the vintage is carried out by the angels. It's important. As we get to the parable of the weeds, you'll see that that's true. And then there's an angel's in charge of the fire. And of course, fire always symbolizes judgment or purification, and that fire came from the altar, and he's in charge of the fire of the altar of, uh, in heaven at the temple. And he calls in a loud voice. He announces to an angel with the sickle, it's time to reap the grapes, to, to take the vintage of the earth. Now, the messenger said, it's time to gather the vintage of the earth. That means that there's a right time for judgment. There's a right time for the harvest, and there's a right time for judgment. Now, the grapes and the vintage will take place at a different time, depending on where you are on this planet. Uh, But this is pictured after the harvest, because the harvest takes place first, and then the vintage takes place. And we know when the vintage will take place from other scriptures. It takes place right at the end of that seven-year time period called the Great Tribulation. So the time to gather the clusters of grapes had come. The grapes were ripe. Happen to be a big fan of grapes. Not that that matters, but I'm just telling you, grapes, love them. Love raisins. I love everything about grapes. In fact, I would never make a good Nazarite, okay? Because they weren't allowed to eat raisins or grapes. So glad God didn't call me to that. So here's the thing about grapes. The grapes that are used for wine have to be, they have to suffer. I've, I've heard it said of those that, do this, that if the soil isn't such that it forces the grapes to suffer, then the fruit will not be sweet. 
Now, that's a picture of just growing grapes, but I think it's interesting. There has been so much suffering that we've witnessed on the earth at this time. What is that all about? God is going to allow suffering, and he allows suffering today, as we've seen on Wednesday evenings in our studies in the book of Job. There's a purpose in suffering. In this case, suffering allows people to make the right choice. But if they refuse to make the right choice, then that suffering will only result in eternal suffering. So when you look at the earth and you say, why is there so much suffering in the world? Have you ever heard anyone say that ever? It's an opportunity for people to choose Christ. See, Christ would not have any perish, but all come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. So he allows suffering so that people will come to Christ. I can tell you, absolutely 100% true, I would not be in Christ today if I didn't go through a time of suffering leading up to the moment I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. There's a purpose in it. But if you persist, even through suffering, if you persist to reject Christ, then you will be a part of what's described here as a vintage. And you'd rather be a part of the harvest. This is a vintage of damned souls that Jesus talked about, again, back in Matthew 13, which we'll look at in a minute, the parable of the weeds. See, once the earth is ripe for vintage, the angels will gather the wicked for judgment. So looking ahead, there really are just two types of people. Harvest, vintage. Which are you? There's still time, as long as you're drawing breath, if you're on the vintage side, and maybe you're going through a time of suffering. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Understand that that's God's grace getting your attention. And he may or may not remove the suffering in this life, but he will absolutely, completely, totally, certainly remove suffering for all eternity. Amen? So take that into consideration this morning. So the angel swings his sickle on the earth, gathers the grapes, which they would do at the time of vintage, and he threw the grapes into the great wine press of God's wrath. And here's the thing. Grapes, while delicious, uh, if you're going to make wine... You have to press them. You have to crush them. They have to be crushed in order to create wine. And that describes the process of God's wrath being poured out on the earth, which we'll talk more about, actually, in the next chapter, starting next week. We've talked about it already. We'll talk some more about it. And then we get to chapter 19, where we talk about Christ coming again uh, to set up his millennial kingdom. But the wicked, these wicked, are trampled in the wine press, and it says outside the city, They're going to be gathered outside the city of Jerusalem. We're told where, when we get to chapter 16, verse 16, in the valley of Megiddo, sometimes referred to as Armageddon. Armageddon isn't the last battle. It's the moment of God's judgment on the earth. It really isn't a battle at all. The enemies of Christ and God, his father, our father, are destroyed by the brightness of his coming, the scriptures tell us. They're destroyed when he shows up. And there the Lord will return, to, as we're told by Isaiah in chapter 63, the Lord will tread the winepress of God's wrath. A picture, it's just a picture, a vision of what's about to take place. Their blood, we're told, flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles uh, for 180 miles. By the way, the blood will rise three to four feet. That's what that means, about three to four feet for a distance of 180 miles, which is roughly the length of Israel which is pretty much the length of New Jersey. We know that because we measure everyone according to their parkway exit, right? So if you get up towards, like, what is it, 171 before you get to the New York border, right? You go all the way down, you get to, like, I think, exit four, 
down in Cape May. You know, I mean, pretty much that measures the miles, right? So imagine, if you will, three to four feet the length of Israel or New Jersey. A lot of enemies are going to be judged in that day. That's the point. And I wanted to take the time to give you a, a, well, maybe lengthy, but accurate explanation to these terms, because now it helps you to understand what we're talking about. We're not actually talking about harvesting wheat or a vintage of grapes. We're talking about God's judgment, but also his taking his own to himself. And what I remember when I studied Matthew's gospel, you can turn there with me if you like, I will read through it, but in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 13, we learn something. Jesus gave his disciples a parable which parallels this description, this vision, in Revelation precisely. Jesus said in Matthew 30, uh, excuse me, 13, 24, it says, Jesus told them another parable. Now, what is a parable? It's a story that teaches a deeper lesson through pictures. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? That is the weeds. He said, No. He answered, Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now that was a, a, another picture. An agrarian society understood this at the harvest time. You, you don't harvest the weeds. Anyone here who has a garden knows weeds, well, just a, a reminder of the curse of sin. And you have these weeds, and you know, you're growing flowers maybe, or you're growing vegetables, and you have to contend with the weeds. But nobody says, oh, I got a good crop of weeds this year. And by the way, you don't need to sow weeds. You don't go to the garden center and buy a little packet of weeds. Have you noticed that? Oh, good. Oh, I hope I get some good weeds this year. No, I see my neighbors and my wife as well. They're out there, you know, kneeling down with the gloves and the tools, pulling the weeds out. They find a way to grow. That's true of the weeds. But isn't it something that the vegetables and the flowers and the other things we seek to grow... Isn't it true that they require a little bit more care? So here's the picture that we see. It's harvest time, and there are weeds, and there are wheat. It's slightly different, but it's the same message. Just like there's the harvest and the vintage, here we have now the wheat and the chaff, or the wheat and the weeds, the sheep and the goats. Jesus is always giving us a picture of two types of people. So the only question is, which are you? As I look at this, it's a beautiful parable, a familiar picture of a farmer sowing in his field, sowing weeds, or an enemy sowing weeds, in this case, among the wheat. But when the wheat grew, so did the weeds, and he didn't want to pull them up right away in order to protect the wheat. So you might be asking, which I ask every morning I get up, oh Lord, why do these wicked people continue to prosper in our world, in our government, in our society? in our schools, in the media, in social media. Why haven't you pulled them up yet? And I I hope I don't sound too happy for judgment, but I would not be dissatisfied if they were pulled up in judgment. 
Why? Why not? Why not yet? Well, here's your answer. It's not time yet. There's a time for harvest and a time for vintage. And both will come. And when they do, make sure that you're on the side of the wheat and not the weeds. And we're talking about weeds, not weed. <laughs> By the way, just trying to lighten the mood. Okay. So, the weeds would be burned, bundled, and the wheat would be harvested. And then Jesus explained this, and I don't need to teach it because he did. And when I look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 36, it says, Then he left the crowd and, and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. They wanted to understand what he meant. Because clearly he wasn't just talking about farming. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. See, when I say things like those running our government and and those that sort of run this world system are evil, I'm not saying anything different than what Jesus said. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm not making a judgment. I'm simply echoing what Jesus said in the scriptures. And it says, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, and where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Same picture. And so we see a vision, but we also have a teaching that tells us the importance of making sure you know whether you're weed or weeds. I find it interesting that the disciples were unable to understand this meaning. And when they didn't know what Jesus was talking about, guess what they did? They asked, and Jesus explained it to them. The sower of the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And we're all in this world. Good seed, sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom. The weeds, the sons of Satan. The devil and the evil one who sows them. The harvesters, angels that faithfully serve the Lord. And the harvest, as we've seen, represents the coming judgment at the end of the age. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We've seen that the weeds are bundled and burned. It represents the judgment of the wicked, the vintage, if you will. And the wheat that's harvested and gathered represents the kingdom of the righteous. So which are you? Which are you? The righteous and the wicked will live together in this world until the judgment. Don't expect a separation, a complete separation, because clearly the day will come when God will separate the righteous from the wicked. The wicked will not be judged right away. That much is clear. There's plenty of wicked people and the judgment hasn't come yet. But that's in order to protect us, the righteous. See, if God were to send fire from heaven right now, probably take out some of the wheat. But the wicked will not be judged until the righteous are ready to enter the kingdom. And remember what I said about the harvest? If it's too soon, it ruins the harvest. If it's too late, the harvest will rot. You can trust that God's timing will be perfect. You have to trust that. I have to trust that. See, I want it right now. I do. I'm sure you do as well. When you see what's going on in our world, what's being done to our children, the wickedness and the 
vile behavior that's being celebrated by our culture. Sadly, the wicked will burn in hell. We don't want to see that happen, but that's what happens. While the righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven. Which are you? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, the gospel message includes good news, but there's bad news for those that reject it. And sadly, many gospel messages today are all good news with no consequences for rejecting it. But when you taught on the subject, you couldn't have been more clear in the parable of the weeds. When you gave John a vision in the Revelation, both of those visions were given. And so, Lord, I feel compelled to just, as you would, just offer salvation through you to all those that would choose to be righteous in you. Those of us who've made that decision, we know our eternal destiny. It's with you for all eternity. But for those who have yet to make that decision, or those who refuse to make that decision, or those that have already made that decision at this point in their lives to reject you, I pray that you would soften their hearts in these dark days to show them that they have an opportunity to avoid, to be saved from, and saved for your glory. Saved from the wickedness, the judgment. It's our choice. You've given us the right to choose. But it's appointed for a man and a woman to die, and then the judgment. We know that you're coming again, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for you. And I pray that you would touch every heart here today, that no one would leave here today, not knowing for sure that the harvest, whether it's through death, rapture, whatever it is, will surely bring them into your presence. And that they would never even have to think about spending an eternity in fiery torment. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.